For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up in a special episode, we'll examine the impact of gun violence on the Tucson community in three ways. The victim of a recent domestic assault speaks about surviving being shot and how her life goals have transformed. Gisela Tellis interviews a psychiatrist about the often misunderstood link between mental illness and gun violence. And a classmate of January 8th shooting victim Christina Taylor Green reflects on how that loss shaped her political awareness on the issues surrounding guns. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Carrie Willits says that her daughter, Heather, has always been strong-willed and passionate about life. Now 41 years old, Heather secretly got her first tattoo when she was 14, and she's added many more since. Independent and adventurous, Heather has worked many jobs, most recently in catering, and she went to school to become a certified welder. On June 7th, at about 7 in the morning, Heather was attacked by an ex-boyfriend from whom she had recently separated. She was shot twice in the head, and Mike Grove, a friend who was with Heather at the time to protect her, was killed. The perpetrator was apprehended by detectives the next day in Phoenix, and the case will soon go to trial. In the meantime, Heather has undergone surgeries to repair her jaw and face, but one of the bullets remains inside her brain. I didn't know what to expect when I met Heather, but she is a fighter, and she came to the AZPM radio studio with her mother, Carrie, to share their story of survival and hope. I asked Carrie to begin by telling me how she received the news. I had a phone call from one of the uh, caseworkers at UMC, and I answered the phone, and she asked if I was Carrie Willits, and I said yes, and she said, well your daughter, Heather, has been shot. And I said, you know, my reaction is, what? I, it was definitely not something I was expecting. This was a little after 11 in the morning. And she says, your daughter, Heather, has been shot. It's going into surgery. You need to come down. And so my um, older daughter was there at the time, and I call her over to me, and I tell her, and she breaks down. And, you know, right before I got in the car, uh, the detective called me and told me that they would meet us at the hospital and we got in the car and headed straight in to UMC um, and met with them and they took us up to Heather's room. How much time has passed now? A little over two months. And this is a question for both of you to respond to. Um, What are the most important elements of your recovery? Um, I understand that you're having some therapy Obviously, there's the medical side of it, mm-hmm. but what else is going on that you think is playing a role for you in coming out of this? I think maybe with my counseling, maybe I can get into groups that I can maybe help other people so this won't happen. And I don't know how to do that because I didn't see it coming, but I'm hoping with my counseling and therapies that I can find a way to help other people. Yeah. 
When you say you didn't see this coming, did you have red flags? Was was there indications to you that the relationship might lead to something like this? He'd been abusive um, many times, hospital trips and stuff, but I never could possibly imagine that I, I would leave him and he would show up and do something like this. Yeah. Had you ever filed charges or gotten a restraining order against him? Yeah, I had a restraining order at one time and, and then dropped it because he was supposed to be getting help. Do you feel like the system tried to help you? Did you experience a cold shoulder from law enforcement, from anyone taking your situation seriously? I think it was a, a failure in him and in himself. I don't think that law enforcement could have done anything. I'd already been to hospitals, and no, I don't, I don't believe that law enforcement would have known. Just like I wouldn't have known, or I wouldn't have been home that night. Carrie, would you like to say anything about how you felt about the relationship, or what even you knew leading up to this? How long was the relationship in effect? Three to four years. Yeah, in the last. Two years were the abusive ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed things that had happened to her, but they would give us different reasons for the injuries, and that was that was difficult because it just didn't ring clear. But I I had known him since she started dating him and seeing him and had him in my home and would have never suspected that he would be the one causing all the injuries. And then after that, I noticed that she would not come around, not answer texts, not answer phone calls. And that, for me, was very disheartening. But I I couldn't put my finger on why. That, well, she's recovering from black eyes or a busted lip or the different things that he had done to her until it was getting close to the end. And then she finally opened up and said, yeah, he, he did this when she's in the hospital. And I knew, I knew when the detectives called me and when the, when the caseworker called me that it had to have been him. It had to have been him. And then she, she told us, yeah, all these other times of the abuse was him. Yeah. How has this shifted your priorities? Family always comes first. As a mom, when one of your kids is hurt, you do anything you can to help them to get better. And so this with Heather, those first couple of weeks when she was in the hospital, her sister and I, literally every day took turns one of us being there to be with her to know that we were we were standing by her and we were going to help her through this and then since she's been released from the hospital and physical therapy and all getting her to her appointments and and she lives with me and I know that's hard on her to go back and live with mom <laughs> after all these years. Yes. But um, knowing that it's a temporary situation while she's getting well and getting stronger and healing. But it definitely changes your outlook on life and changes your focus as to what's important. 
and to know that, especially as a mom, you know, and I'm getting pretty old here, that um, our times are limited and, and we want to to be there for our kids. You know, no matter what the situation, we're just wanting to be there and help them through and get them strong. Yeah. When your mom said that she knew that that was hard on you having to live at home again, I kind well, of yes, I, I kind of I want to live at my home, but it happened in front of my house, and people won't let me go there. Is it still a crime scene? It's not a still a crime scene, but people won't let me be there. Yeah, I want to be at my own home. Well, is that a goal now, though, for you it's, to work it is towards? A goal. Yeah. What other sort of goals do you have right now in terms of getting better? Working. Yeah. Getting back to work and, and staying busy. Tell me about the t-shirt you're wearing today. It's um the shirt that they made for Mike in memory of him. It's got him and his grandson on the back. So he had a, a baby grandson that he's not going to be able to see and help be around. Carrie, can you tell us what role Mike played? I never met Mike, but from Heather and Heather's friends, I've come to know him as a man of great character there to help anyone, whether it's kids struggling with school or addictions. He was just that kind of a giving man. And I, you know, I'm sorry I never got a chance to meet him, but I'm very grateful that he loved Heather enough to want to protect her and saddened that he gave his life like this. Heather, do you want to tell us anything about Mike? He was a warrior. He wouldn't let me go home because he knew that dude was crazy and he... The only reason why he was there with me was because I had to check on my animals and he told him... You can't hurt Heather anymore. I think that's what, why it happened. Because he was protecting me. He was my friend. And he was unconditional. And he told him, you can't hurt her. You can't keep hurting her. You can't do that. Something you said to me on the phone, Carrie, that really um, stayed with me was, any act of violence has many victims. It has that trickle-down effect of reaching out to family, you know, siblings, children, to friends, to the way you think about violence around you, your attitude about the evil in the world. And when it hits this close to home, you know, before now, you look at it and you see it on TV and we become desensitized because it happens so often. But since this has happened, we see the other side of it, the devastation and and the pain and the hurt and trying to uh, find our way through the system for help and just all sorts of things. It It doesn't just affect one person. And it's like, anything there's consequences with any action that we do whether it's positive or negative there's always fallout to others around us it's never never just well it's just going to affect me it affects many people 
Thanks to Heather and her mother, Carrie, for sharing their story. To help with Heather's medical and legal bills, there is a benefit Friday, August 24th at 8 p.m. at the Rialto Theater in downtown Tucson. The headliner will be Heather's uncle, country music and Broadway performer Gary Morris, joined by singer-songwriter Lisa Morales, who is originally from Tucson. All proceeds from the concert will go to help Heather in her recovery. There's also a GoFundMe page called Heather Walks. You can find information about Friday night's Benefit for Heather on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. News stories often cite a connection between mental illness and gun violence in the absence of documented medical diagnosis. This connection has been used to shape public opinion, influence gun legislation, and sometimes to increase the resources that help people living with mental illness. But what are the facts? AZPM mental health reporter Gisela Tellis spoke with Dr. Patricia Harrison Monroe the clinical associate professor and vice chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She is also the director of the Early Psychosis Intervention Center, called Epicenter. Harrison Monroe was formerly the assistant commissioner with the New York City Department of Mental Health and was honored for her service in the aftermath of the World Trade Center disaster. When tragic incidents of mass violence like the Parkland shooting happen, we often end up having a conversation about our mental health system. What does that conversation get right, and what does it get wrong? Well, what it gets right is that we do need to pay attention to what situations drive people uh, into such a crisis that they engage in mass shootings and mass violence. What it gets wrong is the automatic um, connection that the public and and unfortunately um, many of our politicians make um, by linking violence to mental illness. Uh, We know that the vast majority of people with mental illness are not, in fact, violent. Uh, And really, the majority of uh, violence um, that is perpetrated um, is against individuals with mental illness, with severe mental illness. The overall contribution of people with serious mental illness to violent crimes is only about 3%. So why do you think that myth persists? Well, you know, I think the, the public is misinformed about uh, the connection between mental illness and violence. What they see and hear often links uh, mental illness to a violent act that's uh, sensational, and that really does not reflect the reality. The majority of violent crimes uh, are in fact connected to substance use, uh, primarily alcohol use, um, and have nothing to do with mental illness. 
However, when sensational crimes do happen, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times I hear um, uh, reporters um, question whether or not there is any known history of mental illness for that individual, which automatically links the perception whether or not it's confirmed um, that, in fact, the person must have been mentally ill in order to commit such an atrocity. So I think it's it's important to highlight that, that even when we start asking about that history of mental health treatment, that, that link is being made and that stereotype is being reinforced, and actually nothing in the research supports that. Correct. Um, as I said before, you know, about 3% of violent crimes are committed by individuals with a diagnosed serious mental illness. Uh, and so these misperceptions continue to reinforce the stigma about mentally ill uh, individuals uh, and really cause uh, so much more harm than they do help. Um, I think what we need is more resources to address the needs of people that are in crisis, uh, as well as address needs of individuals who are um, suffering with mental illness. Um, but those two things do not automatically link to violent crime. You have seen that stigma affect people's willingness to seek treatment, and in particular, the really highly stigmatized psychotic illnesses where people see and hear things that aren't there. Sure. In the Early Psychosis uh, Intervention Center, Epicenter, uh, we provide services to young people starting at age 15 who are in the early stages of a psychotic illness. It is very difficult, both for uh, the individuals that are affected, as well as for their families, to come to terms with the fact that they have a, a serious mental illness. And then when um, there is this much stigma uh, associated with being mentally ill, it really impacts uh, individuals' and families' willingness to acknowledge that there is a problem and then to seek help. In our program, um, after the Parkland shooting, um, we had individuals who said that they felt uncomfortable being identified or speaking up publicly about mental illness. And, and you know, many of them try to be advocates. And so they are very forthright with the fact that they have a mental illness. But it's incidents like these that really cause them to want to withdraw, to deny, to um, not be as open and um, by extension um, really discourage other people from seeking treatment that really need it. When it comes to gun violence and mental illness, there is one link that is supported by the science, and that is when it comes to suicide. So what do we need to know about suicide as a public health problem? Suicide doesn't get talked about very much. And I would say that many of your listeners probably don't know that uh, it is the second leading cause of death for individuals from 10 to 35 years old. Um, that is significant. And in fact, um, there were more than twice as many suicides in the United States in 2016 than there were homicides. Again, I think it's really important to recognize that suicide uh, and death by suicide is a... Um, a significant public health problem. 90% uh, of all completed suicides are carried out by someone with a diagnosable mental illness. So it really is important to provide treatment availability to provide early intervention to individuals that are in crisis because, in fact, um, so many more lives are lost 
uh, to suicide than to homicide each year. As rare as they may be, there are incidents of mass violence where mental illness does play a role, as we saw here in Tucson in the January 8th, 2011 shooting. Is there something we've learned from those incidents that has changed our mental health system for the better or improved our understanding of how to respond to these events and the people who perpetrate them? I think we've learned some things. We've learned that even when individuals present mental health problems, uh, and even when um, there is potential um, concern about violence, that not enough people act. In part, that comes out of a natural human inclination to hope that someone else takes care of an issue. But I think one of the things that we've done and and that the community is doing is really um, encouraging um, early identification of issues and um, particularly having um, both community colleges and at the university um, having programs that provide early intervention and a means by which students or faculty can express concern about uh, maybe an individual who they feel may pose a threat. However, again, we need to be really careful not to become reporters of potential threats um, based on our own preconceptions about what um, a violent individual might look like. So good education, uh, clear facts, um, better access to resources, um, those are some of the things that I think will um, make a difference. Gisela Tellis spoke with Dr. Patricia Harrison-Monroe. She directs Epicenter, a community mental health program offering specialized treatment for people early in the course of a psychotic illness. Epicenter can be contacted online. We have a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. After the January 8, 2011 shooting in Tucson, Jared Lee Loeffner pled guilty and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He killed six people and injured more than a dozen in a shooting that targeted Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. The result of that tragedy still echoes through this community. The youngest victim was Christina Taylor Green, who was born on September 11, 2001. She was at the public event to see Congresswoman Giffords because Christina Taylor was interested in politics. She would have graduated from high school and been able to vote in 2019. In April 2018, thousands of Tucson students participated in a nationwide school walkout to protest gun violence, an effort led by students in Parkland, Florida, who were the survivors of their own gun attack that killed 17. Next, Brenna Bailey introduces a young woman who helped organize the protest in Tucson. Rebecca Shanks remembers finding out about the Tucson shooting like it was yesterday. She was 10 at the time, a fourth grader at Mesa Verde Elementary School. It was a Sunday. Rebecca says her parents sat her down on their bed and broke the news. A girl from her school had been shot and killed the day before in front of the Safeway down the street. That girl was Christina Taylor Green.
She was nine when she was killed. Rebecca knew her from Mesa Verde Student Council. The news shook Rebecca, and it still does. It was an emotion I had never felt before. Immediately, I had a million questions, and I didn't feel like I could ask any of them because I couldn't even tell what those questions were. I was incredibly confused, and I was sad, and I couldn't imagine being her or anyone in her family and being in that situation. Every single time I hear about a mass shooting, I go back to that feeling. I go back to January 8th and think, why didn't something happen then? Why is this still happening now? Rebecca says the shooting at Safeway on January 8th, 2011, changed how she perceived the United States and her role in its society. Christina Taylor's life and death inspired Rebecca to learn more about politics. And this year, Christina Taylor inspired her to co-organize her school's iteration of the National Walkout standing in solidarity with the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. We initiated the school walkout because we wanted to honor Christina and show that we also wanted to change the world. She had always said that she wanted to change the world and we wanted to do that with her. Rebecca is a junior at Canyon Del Oro High School. She says concerns about school safety and gun violence felt a little too real during a recent lockdown at Canyon Del Oro. It happened a couple weeks after the Parkland shooting. And that one was taken more seriously than I've ever seen a drill taken before. We sat with our lights off and all the blinds closed up against a wall, completely silent for 10 minutes. I know that in my class, I'd never heard a group of teenage students be so silent. And it wasn't just then. Other teachers had taken out parts of their class time to show us what we would do in their classrooms. That's kind of eerie. It was so incredibly eerie. For 10 minutes, we were sitting there in complete silence, and all you could do was reflect on why we're having this lockdown situation, the fear that you would have if it were real, and what we need to do to stop it from happening again. And after after that drill, did you and your fellow students have time to talk about that? In my class, I was lucky. Our teacher did give us an opportunity to talk about what we thought about during that time, how we felt it went, if we felt it was successful or unsuccessful. And I hope other teachers gave their students that opportunity too. But I know we talked about it at lunch that day and after school and about how eerie it did feel. Rebecca says that despite the anxiety and fear she and her classmates felt after the January 8th shooting and now after Parkland and Las Vegas and Orlando, the list goes on, she remains optimistic. She plans to channel that anxiety and fear into activism alongside other youth organizers in Tucson and across the United States. Students are no longer taking it as a joke or taking it as something that we'll fix later down the road when we're older, when we have more power. I believe that when we see that within our young students who are about to be young adults, that we can see hope in the future, that when we become involved in politics as lawmakers and elected officials, we can continue that unity despite our political beliefs, and that's how we're going to get something done. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Brenna Bailey. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. 
The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.